From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Proponents of restrictions on gun ownership protested after a former student, Nicholas Cruz, killed 17 people at a Florida high school on Valentine's Day. In response, some Republican lawmakers and President Donald Trump said they would be open to new measures for the first time in years. Might Congress act on gun control? To talk about that, my guest today is Avery Gardner, co-president of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. Welcome to the show, Avery. Very happy to be here. So, Avery, Congress has taken a number of votes on new gun controls in recent years, and each time has rejected them. Do you think the dynamics are changing? The dynamics are changing, and I think they will continue to change. I think that we will see some action from even this Congress, and then I think we'll see a pretty significant change in the midterm elections when voters are actually making this a top priority issue. Okay. So what are you most hopeful about in terms of new measures? I, there's a measure that's been pending for a couple of months that's called the Fix Nicks bill among those of us uh, in this space. What it would do is provide some financial incentives for states to do a better job of getting data about who is ineligible to buy a gun under longstanding federal law into the system. That has some bipartisan support, and I think it is likely that that will pass. Okay, right. So now let's Let's uh, give our listeners some history here. The last time Congress passed a gun control measure was in 2007, and George W. Bush signed it uh, in January 2008. And this was about that that NICS issue, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. And it, it resulted from, after the shooting at Virginia Tech, in which Sung Hee Cho killed 32 people after he'd been involved in the court system for mental illness. A court had adjudicated him as a danger to himself. He should have been in the background check system, but wasn't. And the bill aimed to improve that situation. Has it? It has improved that, uh, the situation in the background check system. That was called the Nick's Improvement Act. And as you say, it was passed and signed into law on a bipartisan basis. You know, we're seeing the same thing with one of the high-profile shootings that happened earlier this fall, and that was in Sutherland Springs, where the shooter was not eligible to buy a gun, but the records hadn't been put into the system by the Air Force. So it's very, very similar to that Virginia Tech massacre in the sense that we knew somebody shouldn't have access to a gun. We had a law in place that denied him access to a gun, yet because of gaps in the system, he was able to get one. That's part of the reason I think that this bill does have a pretty good chance of passing, that we've already had a roadmap for exactly this kind of improvement. That being said, there's a lot more we can and should be doing. Right. And as far as the, the mental illness issue and getting people who've been adjudicated in court um, as mentally ill, a lot of the states, if I'm, if I'm correct, are not, still not submitting names. Would the Fix Next bill fix that? It would, I think, improve it. Fix is always really difficult, and it's going to be hard to get 100% compliance. But I looked at the records the other day on the FBI's website, and I found that there were about 141,000 records about mental health from the state of Florida in the FBI's NICS background check system as of today. That's very different than what we see from the state of Wyoming, which has a grand total of four records related to mental illness in the system. So there are still great disparities across the states, there's a big opportunity for improvement. We need not just the bill to be passed, but then also funds to be appropriated for it as well. So Avery, in, tw in 2013, 
the gun control proposal in the Senate that came closest to passing was an expansion of background checks sponsored by Joe Manchin, the Democrat of West Virginia, and Patrick Toomey, the Republican of Pennsylvania, that would have uh, uh, required background checks not only for sales at gun shops, but also at gun shows and private sales between just between citizens. If that comes back, would passing it be a good idea? If a bill like that came back, I think passing it could be a very good idea. But that bill had some other serious flaws in it. And one relates to what's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. That's a law that was initially passed and signed in 2004. And what it does is grant unprecedented uh, immunity from civil liability to licensed members of the gun industry. So gunshot victims have a very difficult time getting access to the courts to sue gun makers and gun sellers because they have been immunized from those cases in a way that doesn't apply to any other industry in America. It's a shocking law. It's shocking that we decide to give that protection to one industry and only one industry, and the one we pick is guns. So the problem with Manchin Toomey, among some other things, is that it would have expanded that liability shield to private sellers as well. That's unacceptable. PLACA itself, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, should be repealed, and it should not be expanded. Now, Avery, if, if we look at the mass shootings in recent years, still, the vast majority of the shooters bought their guns with a background check and passed the background check cleanly. So the background checks, I mean, it's not a cure-all. I hear this point a lot when it comes to the gun issue, and I think it's a little bit funny. You know, when we looked at trying to reduce highway deaths as a nation, we didn't say, well, mandatory seatbelt laws won't save all lives, so they're not worth it. We didn't say drunk driving laws won't get at all of the problem drivers, so let's not bother. We didn't say, yeah, speed limits, some people break them, so let's not bother. What we did as a nation is we put together a comprehensive package of safety solutions. And as a result, the number of highway deaths has really dropped in this country. We need the same thing when it comes to the gun issue. We need to be talking about solutions that address high-profile mass shootings for sure, but also all of the other shootings that happen every day in America. And the background check system has already blocked more than 3 million illegal attempts to purchase guns. That's really important, and improving that system will do an even better job. Okay. So, I mean, you bring up the, the car example. Of course, there are still many, many car accidents, deadly car accidents. So let's level with our listeners. These measures will reduce the carnage, but we're not going to eliminate it. I think it's going to be very hard to eliminate the carnage. But let me tell you, every day, 96 people are killed by gunshots in this country. That 96 figure comes from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and we use a five-year rolling average. So that's the source of that data that we use at Brady. 96 people a day is way too many. I think it's worth it to do the reasonable things we can that are still consistent with Second Amendment rights to get that number down to 86, and then 76, and then 66. I tell you, I'd love to be put out of business and get that number to zero, but I do think we're a long way away from that. Yeah. To get the number to zero, I mean, you mentioned the Second Amendment. In an ideal world, would we repeal it or rewrite it? People have been debating that for a long, long time, and I'm not sure it's even worth the energy to talk about it. 
these days. Changing the text of the Second Amendment is not going to happen anytime in the near future, even if people wanted it, and I'm not sure that I do. So I'd rather not talk about the debate over the theoretical issues around whether the Second Amendment's wording about well-regulated militia needs to be clarified, and instead focus on the solutions that would save the most lives the fastest. Right. Uh, Indeed. I mean, getting a change to the amendment would require, what, two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states. That is a heavy lift. But so, too, is getting past these gun control measures. I mean, all we need to do is look at the votes that were taken in 2013, just four months after Adam Lanza shot to death 20 first graders, in which the Senate uh, considered expanding background checks so that private sales, sales at gun shows would also have to go through the background check system. Several Democrats voted against that in a Democratic-controlled Senate. So, I mean, how do, how do activists like you get around that fact that the Democratic Party cannot get this done when they're in charge? Several things in response to that question. First, Eight states went ahead and expanded their background check laws in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook massacre. And I think that's really important that there's improvement. There are opportunities for improvement, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level. And 49% of Americans now live in a state with an expanded background check system. So even when we find trouble at the federal level, we work very, very hard in state legislatures, as well as in the court system, to effect real change. That being said, we need to be making this a much higher priority for all of our politicians. And I'm finding that this issue is no longer falling along the traditional dichotomy of if you're a Democrat, you're for these policies. And if you're a Republican, you're against them. That dichotomy is really disappearing. And I'm finding much more interest from traditional conservative voters, not yet the politicians, but they'll come, voters on common sense gun laws. Right. One of the things that the Brady campaign uh, suggested after this latest mass shooting was to reinstate the assault weapon ban. There was a vote on that in 2013. Diane Feinstein proposed to, to reinstate the ban, which was in place from 1994 to 2004. And 16 Democrats voted against it, including some who still remain in the chamber, like Mark Warner of Virginia, like John Tester of Montana, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, Tom Udall of New Mexico. So these are, I don't don't know, it seems like a very, very difficult task. But you think that their opinions are changing? They might vote differently if given another chance? I don't think that there will be speedy progress on an assault weapon ban in Congress, but I do think that it's something we need to be talking about as a country because it is a common thread through so many of these high-profile mass shootings. Uh, I'll also say that I know a lot of Americans own these guns already and that they're very popular among some hunters and some recreational uh, competition shooters. So we need to be balancing their interests and needs in the political discussion. That's what we need to be having, though, is a discussion. And I'm happy to hear anybody else's better idea about how to address the assault weapon problem we've got. I've heard some steps that would be at least potential improvements that uh, folks are talking about, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be able to buy more than one assault weapon at a time. Maybe you have to be 21 to buy an assault weapon, which which is the federal standard for buying a handgun. 
Maybe we should have a law that says that assault weapons can only be sold by licensed dealers, not by private sellers who don't conduct background checks. I think those are all the sorts of solutions that we should be thinking about and talking about. And I think that some of those people who have been opposed to a ban in the past might be interested in thinking about some of the other kinds of solutions. And let's try this. Let's study it. Let's see what happens. I do think a ban is something that is an important part of the conversation. My organization supports that. Uh, I don't think it's likely this Congress will get there in a speedy fashion. But let's start talking about it. Yeah, I mean the the response typically from the opponents of of the assault weapon ban is that manufacturers would find ways around it. They would they would make guns that that don't conform to the ban but have very similar properties. Um, isn't that a legitimate problem? Yes, those are real problems in the statutory drafting process. Look, there are several states though that have taken action. We can look at what they've done in their assault weapon laws as a guide for what might work best at the federal level. I think we can look back at the time period when there was a federal assault weapon ban in the late 90s and early 2000s and look at the impact on violent crime and gun deaths because there was a strong correlation between the uh, the ban on the assault weapons and gun deaths. So let's let's look at that. Let's figure out how to get around the issues you described, that manufacturers can be clever in how they design things, and the statute has to be designed in a way that will not invite gamesmanship. All right. Another proposal that the Brady campaign has put forth that, you, that you've noted is that states are moving on are what are called extreme risk laws. Those are sort of a new thing on, in the gun control debate. So what are those? It's a really exciting kind of a law, and the West Coast states have been leading the charge here with these laws having been acted in and excuse me, having been enacted in Oregon, Washington, and California. And here's what they do. They allow a family member or a police officer to go to court and ask a judge to temporarily remove guns from somebody who is in the throes of crisis. So it's not that you can just wantonly seize somebody's guns. It has to have court oversight and an opportunity for the person to be heard and respond to the concerns. And then these temporary orders allow police to remove guns for typically 21 days while the person gets help. So it's, it, that's interesting because it's coming from the states, and, and the thinking on gun control typically has been it needs to be a federal solution where people can cross borders and, and transport guns. And, but you're seeing more prospects coming from the states. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to consider these extreme risk orders in the context of what happened at Parkland. A couple of days after the shooting, President Trump sent out a tweet that people should be on the lookout for the signs of folks who are in crisis and refer them to the authorities. And the fact is that that happened in Parkland. Family members, friends, school officials all noticed the signs that this was a troubled man, and the police were involved, but they had no ability to do anything about it. If there had been an extreme risk law in place in Florida, it's possible that somebody would have invoked that procedure and this man's guns would have been removed temporarily. There's absolutely no reason for Florida not to enact that new law tomorrow. All right. I want to turn to 2016, the last time the Senate took up some gun control votes. And they voted down the Democratic proposals, but they also voted down two Republican proposals, one by Charles Grassley, the judiciary chairman, that would have increased funding for background checks and 
notified law enforcement if someone investigate who was on the terrorist watch list tried to purchase a gun. They also voted down a proposal by John Cornyn, the Senate Republican whip from Texas, that would have delayed gun purchases by people on the terrorism watch list for 72 hours and allowed law enforcement to seek a court order to block a sale during that time. Those failed because Democrats voted against them. And I think the Democrats' position was those are really quarter measures, not even half measures in terms of affecting gun control. And they didn't want to let the Republicans off the hook by passing them. But given the carnage, should they accept quarter measures? I am not going to settle for breadcrumbs on this issue. And that's an important message here in the context of the fixed nicks bill that people are talking about or banning bump stocks. Those are the small potatoes measures that are being discussed as potential solutions at this stage. Hey, those are good things to do. We should ban bump stocks and we should improve the background check system. But today, one in five guns is sold without a background check at all. I looked yesterday online at one website and I looked for one kind of gun, an AR-15, in the state of Florida, available from private sellers who don't do background checks, and I found more than 400 listings for that one type of gun in that one state on that one website. That's the kind of change we need to be focusing on, and we should not let our leaders off the hook until they address it. So, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily let them off the hook, though. I mean, you could have passed the Grassley proposal, which seems to be similar to the fix Nix idea, and then continued with, with further efforts and said, yeah, this is a quarter measure. It's not enough, but maybe it would you know, save a few lives. In politics, you do have to sometimes take half a loaf, and we are working with our strategists and with our connections on the Hill to figure out exactly what that roadmap is. But it has to be something meaningful, and it has to save lives. Okay. Thank you, Avery Gardner, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for your attention to this important issue. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And for more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.